Welcome back to See, Hear, Feel. For those of you who have been listening along to this podcast, thank you. And thank you to anyone starting in. I started this podcast wanting to explore emotional intelligence, metacognition, bias, deliberate practice, and the growth mindset. My aim was to hear from experts doing research in those areas, as well as doctors and the real-life application of these important concepts. These conversations have confirmed for me that the most successful and content remain passionate about their work and employ their minds and hearts to do so. If you want to know exactly how, I don't have a perfect answer, but here is a start with the following quotes. As Dr. Antoine Bachara addresses, the brain and logic alone are not enough for perfect decision making. We use our brain to solve a lot of logical problems. Many, many important decisions in real life, they're not certain. They're very uncertain. They're very ambiguous. The way the brain cope with that is by relying on what we call body states or somatic states. Those signals guide us towards things that could be good for us or guide us towards things that could be bad for us. The brain is basically useless (laughs) if it's not connected to the body and the body giving it information. Like Dr. Bachara, Dr. David Caruso, an expert in emotional intelligence, says a similar thing. How you feel impacts how you think, your decision-making, probably your diagnostic work. We could call this bias the so-called affect heuristic. Here's a clip from Dr. Pat Crosscarry. If you talk to psychologists about affect, which is how the clinician feels, and that may be positive or negative, or it may be neutral, the psychologists say that we're usually placed somewhere on an emotional spectrum, whether it's you slightly like somebody just on the basis of their appearance or what they're saying, or you may slightly dislike them, or you may polarize even further along that continuum. The psychologists call that the affect heuristic, that actually we tend to make decisions based on our emotions, which are largely unconscious to us. Emotions do definitely influence me for better and for worse, and I often focus more on how emotions affect me and outcomes negatively. Dr. Bechara says, Emotion, that comes from the outside. So let's say you're very, very angry or you're very, very sad. Something rattled you outside and you come to make an important decision. Emotion that is unrelated to what you're working can be disrupted. I do think that emotion can be disruptive, especially shame. Dr. Luna Dolezal talks about shame and says the following. At the crux of shame is belonging. Shame threatens our social bonds and threatens our sense of belonging because what we feel is that we'll be rejected by the other, we'll be scorned or shunned or ostracized. Shame is actually the emotion that carries norms into the self because when we feel a moment of shame, what we feel is that we have fallen short of an external standard. Shame in medicine, it's everywhere in medicine, but nobody talks about it and nobody acknowledges it, but it pervades everything. It pervades how patients experience medicine, it pervades medical student experience, pervades institutions, clinicians, experiences. If you have a relationship where you trust someone, you know them, it's easier to address these negative self-conscious emotions and expose your vulnerabilities. But the practicalities of how healthcare systems work mean that that's often not the case. These non-relational encounters with people that are very functional and objectifying. I think Dr. Dolezal is right. Shame can definitely be an intense emotion in medicine. I felt it more than enough recently. Dr. Jared Gardner talks about how that kind of intensity can bias us. When you feel intense emotion, 
about something, sometimes that can bias us, I think, in our decision-making, right? Either if it's a pleasant kind of emotion or an unpleasant kind of emotion or whichever way you want a positive, negative, whatever label you want to apply, you know, either way, really strong emotions sometimes alter the logic of our thinking. And so I have found one thing that making big decisions is probably best done when you are not super upset or super angry. Dr. Cameron Mirza says a similar thing about emotions potentially being too intense. It comes back to not being crippled. I don't want to be crippled under the weight of the emotion, right? Dr. Pat Crossgary talks on how emotions affect doctoring. As an emergency physician, I may approach a patient and they may trigger a negative affect. Without being consciously aware of it, my decision-making may change in a biased way for no good reason. The second problem is that your first reaction to a patient, not only is it influenced by this affect heuristic, but also it tends to influence what follows. Because as you initiate your decision-making process, it tends to trigger what follows. This has been discussed in the psychology literature, and they refer to it as a cascade effect, that the first bias tends to trigger more bias. And it's also been referred to as a snowball effect. Affect is critically important, probably underpins a lot of decisions. Emotion can lead to bias. And Dr. Karen Spencer gives a sociologic perspective. When things are uncertain is when biases are just sort of invited in because they help you fill gaps. So if you're feeling a little uncertain, it invites bias because that's how we're going to make sense of things. Doctors are just like the rest of us. When we're tired and hungry or cognitively overloaded, trying to do too many things at one time, our decision-making suffers. And that matters if you're having a discussion with your spouse or your child or your patient. Those same things matter in lay circumstances or in these kind of healthcare settings. That's important. Diagnostic certainty is very predictive of taking action The danger is in letting that unlikely situation become impossible in the view of the provider. So ultimately, how to address intense emotions and bias, how to be better? Dr. Allison McGregor speaks to this. The key here is awareness. So you can't unknow this is how I look at it. The more we create awareness, the more we can stop our patterns to check for our own biases. Meanwhile, we also need to be aware that emotion gets a bad reputation. Research has shown that there are true gut feelings, and Dr. Antoine Bachara talks about that. The emotion that you evoke and you enact as a part of your decision, if you're deciding on where to move, what job to take, or if you're deciding on what stock to buy. That gut feeling that you may enact at that time, that's very important and very helpful. So I think we need to distinguish two different contexts of emotions, the context where emotion can be disruptive versus calmer emotion that's actually much more beneficial. Cultivating the ability to listen to your gut feelings, that can create confidence. Here's what Dr. Philip McKee has to say about confidence. I think that's one of the critical things to succeeding in whatever you do, is being confident in yourself and of yourself. And when you've got that, then the world's your oyster. Of course, just like emotion might be a double-edged sword, confidence can be as well, as Dr. Christopher Shabri points out. 
it's a little bit of a feedback cycle, right? So part of the illusion of confidence, that confidence doesn't always perfectly match, you know, your ability, your competence or something like that. In fact, we are often more confident in our abilities and our knowledge and our memories than we should be. So what do I do about the seesaw of emotions being potentially bad and good with the same thing being true for the gut feeling and confidence? How do I know, how do we know when to trust a gut feeling versus mistrust it as a negative bias? Dr. Jung Sung Yoon and Dr. Kyle Harwell touch on this in their episode about deliberate practice. Here's a clip from Dr. Kyle Harwell. The idea of experts being able to you know, do the amazing feats of skill that they do, being driven more by what they've learned versus what their innate abilities are, is a defining characteristic of Dr. Erickson's model of expertise. It's one that differentiates it from classical models of expertise as well. So you could argue that mental representations are sort of like the engine in the car that is expert performance and deliberate practices is what builds that engine. Deliberate practice, meaning practicing with a focus on reaching specific goals, like using emotions in a beneficial manner, or training to listen to gut feelings, or learning to be appropriately confident, this is all trainable with mental representations. I think we can relate to this as physicians because we do this in our diagnostic work. Dr. Timothy McCalmont speaks to this about measuring diagnosis using feedback as in the deliberate practice model to learn and improve. We need to have an external way to measure our diagnoses. That can be through colleagues. Using ancillary testing for me personally was very valuable by being in a situation where I got to compare my diagnoses to molecular diagnoses, I underwent an explosion of learning. And I think it really enabled me to grow in a way that I hadn't previously imagined, both in terms of confidence in what I was doing, but also in terms of, you know, sort of a form of self-validation. As the deliberate practice model tells us, feedback like in confirming a diagnosis, is needed to improve. Like Dr. McCalma, Dr. Sarah Jiang measures her diagnoses. The number one way that I actively improve my diagnostic skills is because I do cyto and I do histo. I do cyto-histo correlations. To me, it's really, really helpful because being able to see the search path of those weird thyroid lesions or weird salivary lesions and then go back, I often will pull the cyto, certainly especially if I think it's something weird or interesting, I'll look back on the cyto. My search path practice informs my cytology practice. A lot of us who do cyto and then something else do that to kind of inform our practice. Just as diagnostic skills can be improved with feedback from molecular or cytology surgical pathology correlation, empathy and communication are skills we can improve, according to Dr. Mary Dom. And using this empathy that people often sort of say, oh, it's really hard to learn. You either have it or you're not. Like they also say you're either a good communicator or you're not. And that's not really true. We can use deliberate practice to improve any skill we really want to. Dr. Jong Sung Yoon encapsulates deliberate practice in this way. The key principles of deliberate practice is, yes, it should be challenging, you know, but still doable. Uh, so when I, when I get out from my you know, comfort zone, you know, it, it, it tells me where I need to improve. Then, then I try to design some activities or just, just work really hard to improve that specific aspect as a teacher or the researchers. And 
it's, it's not easy uh, because many times it hurts my self-esteem. Uh, I experience some awkward moments as well. Meanwhile, we all do get tired. There is burnout, especially with the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Philip McKee speaks to this. You have to know when you can't do any more. You have to realize whether it's six o'clock or seven o'clock or eight o'clock, whenever it is, you have to realize, okay, anymore, I'm not safe. My concentration is gone. And so you must stop then. Definitely knowing when to stop or take a brief break is important, not only for our diagnostic work, but also our emotions, as Dr. Cameron Mirza suggests talking to my middle child i mean it wasn't such a big deal either and she just looked at me and she's like dad i just think i need a, a few minutes to reset and i was like reset what and she's like just reset my emotions and i was so proud of her dr amy paller talks about how this kind of taking a pause can be very difficult being able to step back take a deep breath think a bit and in a very calm manner explore and try to get everyone on the same page the time to do that, slowing down and really listening, is always at exactly the time when we don't have the time to do that. It's when we're stressed, when tensions are high, when we have a time crunch, that we often find ourselves in these situations where we must take a deep breath, where we must speak in a very calm, reassuring voice. But that's what we have to do to turn around and diffuse a situation. This type of learning to pause and take the time is something we can all work on using deliberate practice at home and at work. Dr. Stephen Chen speaks to it. When I'm faced with something that really stresses me out and it almost feels like a personal attack, I need to stop. I need to take a deep breath. I need to think about how that person is feeling. And I've learned how to extract myself from certain situations so that I don't say something that I regret. I can approach it in a very mature way. The fact that I can use those exact same skills with my kids at home is not lost on me. I also think that some people just get it. Some people have got it, but it's trainable. It all comes down to the fact that we are all human. Here is Dr. Pat Crosscary speaking to that. A lot of us are being manipulated by these biases, subconsciously or unconsciously. I think most people aren't aware of it. People have even argued in medicine that doctors aren't vulnerable to biases, to these kinds of biases. And I find that shocking, <laughs> that we should be considered different in a fundamental characteristic of human behavior. Why should doctors be any different? There's nothing in our training that actually trains us to be objective and debiased and aware of biases. In fact, quite the opposite. There's an absence of training. Doctors are definitely human, and Dr. Katie Jobbins touches on being a doctor and our humanity. It is sometimes completely inhumane what we think of what we're supposed to do. It really has disconnected us to who we are and where we are. I focus a lot on this with my trainees that this whole act of being kind, if you're not kind to yourself and you're that hard on yourself, recognize how that really can affect us long term. It is much better to be a human being and be your full self, be your authentic self with a patient, with your colleagues in a meeting, than it is to be someone who is hiding that. It allows for us to have a deeper connection and oftentimes models the behavior we want our trainees to do. It is our natural state of being to have a gamut of emotions. Being human means that we do have emotions, we do make mistakes, and doctors are only human and leaders are only human, as Dr. Olaleke Fularanmi points out. Let them see you as human, 
and let them know that you see them as humans too, and that makes you a better leader. You see the human face to leadership. Similarly, Dr. Allison McGregor touches on being human. We just have to have this sort of culture of openness and forgiveness and not of perfection. Being open helps us connect, and Dr. John N. Ho is committed to increasing connections for him using Kiko and connecting doctors. I want us to feel that, that connectedness, that togetherness. Connections keep us strong and help prevent burnout, which Dr. Michi Shinohara talks about. And she also gives practical tips on how to decrease stress while we try to fix systems that create burnout. Exercise, making art, meditating, hanging out with my kid, going to therapy, you know, all those things that I know I need to do to complete my stress cycle. For my husband, it's gardening, spending time with our kids. I think it's a little different for everybody. Ultimately, as doctors, we often are trying to fix problems, but being a good doctor is not just about problems or just about diagnoses, but really seeing patients, as Dr. John McGrath covers. This process of diagnosis is filtered into clinical expectation and reality as well. So trying to appreciate what's going on, setting a scene for you then to be able to intervene on levels that the patient thinks are useful to them. And I guess that sort of dilutes the meaningfulness of making an accurate diagnosis. But one is always trying to help the entire patient. And I guess that's the ethos that drives genetic skin diseases and many other aspects of trying to be a good clinician. And Dr. Timothy McCalmut sums it all up really well. We can understand ourselves as humans a little bit better, and we can use that to be able to make our professional life strong and vibrant. Understanding ourselves and putting ourselves in a situation to succeed, we can play to our strengths and make ourselves better physicians, better dermatopathologists by thinking about what we're doing. Hopefully you enjoyed this summary. Throughout this podcast, I will continue to explore conscious emotions versus gut feelings, mental representations versus mental schemas, bias versus heuristics, and how each of us can continuously improve. Thank you for listening.